Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, leaning in to different perspectives. I, I think I even said it, you know, I said it in Spanish, but like I said, <laughs> I said it like, yeah, nunca lo había pensado así, mami, wow. Wow, mom, I never thought of it that way. This is Monica Guzman, and that light bulb moment was the result of a conversation she had with her mother on November 8th, 2016. The presidential election results were in. Trump had won. I am, I am a liberal. I was devastated. You know, politically, I was devastated. And I, was, I live in Seattle, surrounded by a liberal culture. The whole city was devastated. So that night, you know, my babies went to bed, my husband went to bed, and I think, I know who I need to call. My mother. <laughs> who is conservative and voted for Trump. And this is because I love my mother. We have incredible conversations, and somehow it works even when we really disagree. So, you know, she picks up the phone, and I'm clearly just wrecked. And I tell her what I really believe in that moment, which is that democracy broke tonight. Democracy is broken. I tell her, I don't believe this candidate is going to have the kind of honoring of our institutions that is required like, this is our adopted country, Mom. You know, I really care about this place. Guzman and her parents are Mexican immigrants. We came over when I was about six years old. We became citizens when my parents passed the citizenship naturalization test and process in the year 2000. They've always had different politics and animated discussions about those differences. But that night in November 2016, Guzman just needed to sort through her feelings. And my mom, to her credit, I actually didn't realize until way later that she was so happy that night. I mean, duh, her candidate won. Of course she was happy that night. But I didn't know because she was holding back. She listened, and she let me talk a long time. And then she said, you know, Monica, this reminds me of growing up in Mexico. And she told me things I already knew but needed to be reminded that for many, many years, most of her life, one party won every presidential election, and elections were a complete farce. People voted because you were supposed to or something, but no one actually believed it counted because it didn't. And then my mom comes to the United States, becomes a citizen, votes with confidence for Republican candidates who support policies that she prefers, and here comes the 2016 election, and all she's hearing in the media is, Hillary Clinton's gonna coast to a victory. Oh, and also the Republican candidate is awful and terrible and horrible in all these ways, right? And she's going, well, I don't believe that. And this is America, and I'm going to cast my vote, even though everyone's telling me it's not going to matter. She cast her vote. Her candidate won, shocked the system. So she goes, Monica, you say democracy is broken, but I'm telling you, the way I see it, democracy works. This is proof democracy works. My candidate won. And so that hit me like a, just to talk about reactions, that just hit me like a punch, you know? But kind of a good punch and a bad punch. It's not like I changed my mind and all of a sudden I'm not worried about our democracy. I still am. But but I had to... I just had to stop and let that complicate my understanding. 
Regular Top of Mind listeners first heard that story from Monica Guzman in our Stick With It conversation series. And today we are exploring her insights in a different context. What's so stunning about Guzman's election night experience is that two people who shared so much in common could look at the same set of facts and come to opposite conclusions. But it's not really that mysterious, is it? Our perspectives are shaped by the experiences we've had. Guzman and her mom had lived different lives. Logically, it makes sense. But in practice, it is so hard to remember when we are confronted with a viewpoint that seems so clearly wrong to us. Well, on top of mind, we are out to become better citizens and kinder neighbors by taking a closer look at the assumptions that underpin our decisions. And so today, we're looking at the causes and possible solutions to the all-too-common assumption that the way we see the world is the way everyone else sees it. And it's not just our life experiences that drive us to perceive the world differently. It's also our biology. For example, millions of people have a genetic mutation that makes it difficult to tell the difference between red and green or yellow and blue. So we can look at the exact same painting in the same place at the same time and see a different image. Untold thousands of people have synesthesia where two or more of their senses blend together so that words might have tastes or colors have sounds. Think about that next time someone tells you they really dislike a certain word. Maybe it's because it literally leaves a bad taste in their mouth. There's also clear evidence that people process information differently. Some of us more through the verbal circuitry in our brains and others through the visual centers. I'm an extreme object visualizer. If I can't make a picture, I can't think about it. This is Temple Grandin. She's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and consults with food processing plants on improving their operations. But Grandin is probably best known for her 1994 memoir, Thinking in Pictures, My Life with Autism, which became an HBO movie. Her latest book, called Different Kinds of Minds, explores the science behind visual and verbal thinking. All of us tend toward one or the other, says Grandin. The most common is usually mixtures rather than an extreme kind of thinking. But you get a kid with a, a person with a, has a label, like autism, dyslexia, ADHD, then you're more likely to get the extremes, an extreme mathematician, an extreme visual object visualizer, or an extreme word person, too, you can get. I always thought that people thought in pictures the way I think. I think totally in pictures. And I didn't realize until I was in my late 30s that other people thought differently. And the way I discovered it was um, I was asking some questions to a speech therapist who was a very, very verbal thinker at an autism conference. And I asked her, think about a church steeple. How does it come into your mind? And when I think about something like this, um, I see specific pictures of church steeples. They come up like PowerPoint slides and I can name off where they are. But the speech therapist just got pointy thing, two lines like that. She sketches two lines to illustrate and holds up the page. And that was a shock to me. So Grandin decided to learn everything she could about visual thinking. And that brought some key moments from her past into clearer focus. My very early work with cattle, I got down into the shoots to see what cattle were seeing. 
and people thought that was really weird. Some of Grandin's fondest and most formative experiences as a teenager were on her aunt's ranch, where she had a habit of tackling problems by taking the cow's perspective. Oh, the problem was the cattle refused to go through the chute. And I noticed if there's a chain hanging down or there's a reflection on a piece of shiny metal, the cattle would stop. I'd tie up the piece of chain that's hanging down, the cattle would go through the chute. Someone put a coat on a fence, and they notice that, and you take the coat off the fence, and then they walk right by. Well, I didn't know at the time that other people thought in words, so they wouldn't be thinking about looking at what cattle were seeing. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is I want people to recognize that different kinds of thinking exist, and they bring different approaches to problem-solving and how you think about things. So what do you mean that you think in pictures? Can you, des- can you describe that? Well, I think the best thing for you to do is to pretend I'm Google for images. Give me a keyword. Give me something original. Don't do house, dog, or car. Let's get something really original and something I'm not going to be able to see in this room, and I'll tell you how my mind pulls up the images. Okay. Presidential election. Well, I'm seeing when I was a child, um, we loved to play with all the election stickers. We, you know, oh, we decorate our bikes with all of this stuff. Um, the, uh, I'm now seeing, you know, going and voting. I'm now seeing machine-readable ballots, which I think are one of the best ways to do things right because they can always be hand-counted. Uh, now I'm hearing... Uh, a a political attack ad from the 50s. They were really innocent. It was, uh, let's see, uh, whistle while you work. Stevenson's a jerk. Eisenhower's got the power. Whistle while you work. They were really, really innocent. Or Eisenhower's in the White House waiting to get elected. Stevenson's in the garbage can waiting to get collected. And now I'm getting controversial stuff that I am not going to talk about. And I have a very strict no politics policy. So I have to be more abstract because I'm not going to talk about it in specifics. Okay, if you elected this president, he'll do this. And if you elect another one, he'll do something else. So so what, so let, let me ask, could, could we play this game a couple more times? Is that all right? Yeah, we can play it with something else because I have a no politics policy. Understood. Um, so what about um, ice cream cone? Well, I'm, I'm gluten intolerant, so I don't have ice cream cones. But yesterday, I came in the airport, and I came out on the B concourse, but I got to stop at the Ben and Jerry gates because I had some Panda Express, and then I had Ben and Jerry for dessert, and I had uh, fish food ice cream. Hmm. Um, now, different childhood memories of ice cream are, are coming up. I'm now seeing a Dairy Queen that I pass on the way to the airport. Again, that's a recent memory. I tend to get childhood memories and a lot of recent memories. So it's it's images, it's memories, it's like a moving, you know, like a movie and a slideshow. They're more like those little videos where you take a picture and the video moves a little bit. It's associative thinking. So in reading your book, I am pretty certain that I am a very strong verbal thinker. I'm probably not the most verbal, but for me, so I'm trying to think about if someone said ice cream to me. All right, let's just think of something else. Parking lot. Okay, so I'm I'm actually literally seeing the word in my mind, P-A-R-K-I-N-G space Mm L-O-T. And then I'm thinking car and sort of a generic black top space with lines in it. It, Oh, no, you see now, I don't have, there's no generic, 
There's no generic parking lot. There's only specific parking lots. So do you have a photographic memory? Oh, well, not for everything. I don't remember every hotel room because I could care less about hotel rooms. So I only remember the really awful and the really weird hotel rooms. So if I were to say hotel room, you would conjure these images of hotel rooms you'd experienced, but it wouldn't be A to Z, every single one you've ever been in. I remember a weird hotel when I was doing one of my book tours quite a number of years ago. They put me up in New York. It was the weirdest hotel. You walk into this place and it looks like Mr. Neelix's bar from Star Trek. That's what it looked like. But it had weird furniture in it. Like it had this chair in there, like a French upholstered chair, but it had a picture of a Rottweiler to bite your butt off on it. <laughs> and then the elevators looked like transporters. <laughs> I am not kidding. And one was like red glowing. Another one was green glowing. Another one was blue glowing. Then when you got up the rooms, they were small and really weird. And the headrest was a padded Rembrandt painting in a fancy gold frame. That was the headboard. Wow. And how long ago would that have been that you visited well, that? Well, that was um, probably 10 or 15 years ago. And you remember in that much detail still, you can still visualize. Well, because it was so weird. That's why I remember it. You see, it's sort of like I got to push the save button. And this hotel was so weird and so strange that I remembered that. So Temple Grandin, this is fascinating. Um, why does it matter? that people perceive the world in such different ways, that some of us are going to be more likely to think in words and recall words, and others are going to see images or even visual memories like you. Well, the visual memory people are very good with mechanical things. And if you'd like the power to stay on in your studio right now, you're going to need people like me. You like to have the water working, the elevators working? You're going to need people like me to keep that stuff working. Because you just see how things work and you can fix it. And there's a whole chapter in the um, Different Kinds of Minds books about disasters. And one of the disasters is Fukushima. And that was a huge visual thinking mistake. And it was one so basic, I almost find unbelievable that they made this mistake. It's not a very good idea when you live next to the sea and there's tsunamis and a history of tsunamis to put your super important electrically operated emergency cooling pump in a non-waterproof basement. It would have been saved by simple watertight doors to protect the electric pump that you really need. And why do you think someone didn't see that? Uh... Mathematicians calculate. They don't see. I see risk. Engineers calculate risk. You've got another example in the book of the um, the Boeing Max airplanes that um, had a had a, a flaw in the design. What is it that you see when you look at what went wrong with the Boeing airplanes? There's this thing called an angle of attack sensor, a very delicate little thing about the size of this Sharpie pen that sticks out underneath the cockpit window, and it measures air angle. Because if the air angle gets too steep and the airspeed too slow, the plane can stall. Don't want to do that in an airliner. Absolutely not. It measures air angle and it has an indicator on the instrument panel telling the pilot he's in danger of stalling. Now, what did Boeing do wrong with that? Well, they wanted to um, put the new high capacity, you know, high fuel efficient engines on the old Boeing 737 airframe so they wouldn't have to retrain the pilots. But the problem with these big, gigantic engines that are really fuel efficient is they act like wings and they make the plane tend to stall. 
So then they came up with this computer system that they wired up to a single angle of attack sensor that if the plane started to stall, it would push the nose down automatically. All right, nobody asked this question. What happens if a bird just busts off the angle of attack sensor? It's a very fragile little thing. The, the plane thought it was stalling when the sensor was busted. Then the pilot kept, the computer kept pushing the nose down. The pilot kept trying to pull it up. The computer won and the plane crashed. And the pilots were not properly informed about this computer. To be able to override it. It was a gigantic visual thinking mistake. They fixed it. I'm not the least bit worried about it. One of the things they did is this computer just shoves the nose down once. And you see, the mathematical engineer didn't see the mistake. Why are why do we live in a world where visual thinkers are too often not in the room? Well, I'm worried that we're screening out my kind of thinker. Temple Grandin says when schools get rid of art and music and shop class, they're eliminating the subjects where visual thinkers shine. And certain required subjects can derail their ambitions. Her nemesis was? Algebra. Absolutely couldn't do it. You see, it's too abstract. You see, there's nothing to visualize. And I've talked to teachers that try to teach kids like me, and they say, oh, they're just pulling their hair out because they said, well, this student just doesn't yeah. remember this stuff. That's because there's nothing there to visualize. The equation itself, x squared plus b equals yeah, whatever. Yeah. c, like that doesn't, that's not a visualization that's effective for you. No, it's not. And what I think the schools need to be doing, let me substitute geometry, accounting, statistics, or business math for the algebra. I'm not suggesting totally getting out of math. We'll get back to math that I can relate back to real things. Because I can size air cylinders and hydraulic cylinders on equipment. Pi times the radius squared. I see the cylinder. Let's look at the big excavating machine. I'm seeing the cylinders on that. I know exactly how to calculate the pressures on those. And so what was the consequence of not being able to do algebra for you? Oh, I had to drop physics class. I couldn't major in engineering, couldn't major in aerospace. So I basically ended up in the clever engineering department. That's what she calls engineering that's done without a degree in math. And I discovered this. All this engineering gets done in the shop by the people who can't do algebra. And a lot of them are autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD, and they're inventing things, mechanical devices, all different kinds of stuff, all different kinds of industries. And the problem we've got now is the people I work with on building equipment, they've retired out. They are not getting replaced. It is a serious skill loss issue. How are you able to describe so well what you see in your mind? How did you develop your verbal skills to be a writer and a presenter and have all these books? Well, the ver verbal skills um, describe the pictures. So when I did the original adult version of the book, Visual Thinking, I wrote the rough drafts, kind of disorganized, kind of associational. And Betsy, my highly verbal co-author, smoothed it all out. We worked together with complementary skills, full, thoroughly understanding how we thought differently. And, and it was a, that, that's where you're collaborating. And I found with the food processing plants, the visual thinkers like me design all the mechanical devices, but the mathematicians have got to do the mathematical parts, boilers, refrigeration, power requirements, water requirements, uh, snow loading on a roof, all the things that require mathematics. You see, you need both. You need both. What, what's your advice for, for collaboration, H having experienced it so many times? The first step is you have to realize different kinds of thinking exist. 
and the kinds of skills that they bring into the picture. That's the first thing that that you have to do. I used to think visual thinking mistakes were due to stupidity when I was young. I didn't know about the different kinds of minds. That did not exactly make for very good collaboration to me, calling colleagues stupid. You know, now, <laughs> now I realize that it's different kinds of thinking. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Her latest book is Different Kinds of Minds, which is a young reader's adaptation of her best-selling book, Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. I think different perspectives that derive from genetics or brain wiring are easier to accept than differences of opinion rooted in life experience or core values. If we're looking at one of Mark Rothko's famous red and green paintings, for example, and I'm enthralled, but you're not impressed because green and red look the same to your eyes, I'm not gonna try to change your mind. Let's just go look at something different. But when we're face to face with someone with a political or cultural position that we think is so wrong, it makes us angry. How can we possibly collaborate? let alone have a meaningful conversation about the issue. I mean, the most important is to change from asking why to asking how. So not why do you believe what you believe or versions of that question, but instead, how did you come to believe what you believe? Monica Guzman has some practical advice for us, cultivated through years of tough conversations with her politically opposite parents. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hey, it's Julie. There is another podcast I think you're going to like from the BYU Radio family of podcasts, so I wanted to pass along the word. It's called In Good Faith. Join host Stephen Cat Perry as he connects with believers from various religions, Christians, Buddhists, Jews, Muslims, and much, much more. Listening to their captivating stories is an opportunity to deepen our own understanding of faith, religion, and spirituality. Plus, Stephen is really well-traveled, and his global perspective brings a unique richness to each conversation. Elevate your appreciation for the divine with In Good Faith. It's an inspiring journey of unity and enlightenment. Listen anywhere you get podcasts. Asking the right questions is at the heart of Monica Guzman's advice for bridging big differences in opinion. But she says the first question is one to ask yourself. When you ask what am I missing? You are acknowledging the fact that in most cases, especially when it comes to people you don't know very well, you're probably missing something. Guzman is author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. And she's a senior fellow at Braver Angels, which is a nonprofit working to depolarize America. It was the conversation with her Trump-supporting mom on election night 2016 that got her thinking about the power of genuine curiosity to build relationships across ideological differences. I just realized the way I'm looking at things, it's not that it's wrong, but there's layers to add to it. There's complexity. There's perspective, right? Um, growing up in Mexico, coming to the United States. Uh, what is democracy? You know, what is that? What is at its core? We had a really great conversation after that. But again, I really credit my mom that night for listening, um, so I could hear her. 
But what what was actually accomplished that in that conversation when neither of you changed your mind? Well, one thing is I, I, rem- I remembered the truth that we always have something to learn from people who disagree with us. Um, there are things that we can remind each other of. There's illuminations that come from just our own experiences that we can forget in the heat of a moment. Even the smartest person, most informed, most educated, it's, it's a lot to try to take on all the complexity of the world in one person. So it reminded me of that, for one. The other thing is that, honestly, it took off some of the weight of that night. You know, I felt a little bit lighter and maybe a little more hopeful as a result of complicating my understanding in that moment. Um, so had I only spoken to folks who totally saw it my way, I probably would have gone to bed more panicked than you can possibly imagine. So then one can ask, well, maybe the panic is helpful. It's like, yeah, but maybe the panic is not helpful, <laughs> you know? Um, fear is a really strong thing in our lives and is a kind of villain to curiosity. You can't wonder about something you think is going to get you. I think what's happening a lot in our society these days is we are judging each other more while we're engaging each other less. And the more you play out that cycle, the less people are going to think, not only that they have anything to learn from someone who disagrees with them, but they're also going to be more afraid of that person, more sure that the only outcome is going to be harm. And then we're going to underestimate the frequency with which we can actually be illuminated by talking with other people. We can see where we don't disagree that much at all, it turns out. We can figure out hang-ups that we have about each other's position that might actually be simple to solve. We see that happen in politics when there's enough courage to actually engage across the divide. It's not about coming to the middle at all. It's about understanding where each other is coming from. And once that happens, I believe persuasion, real persuasion is possible. Not the kind of persuasion that's about shaming people into submission. (laughs) you know, or just saying, fine, just to make you shut up. Real persuasion happens when we actually listen to each other. Um, Having a a moment where you realize that you have a blind spot, that that you, I I never thought of it that way before. Like my life experience had never, never allowed me to see it like that until you just expressed that to me. It, It can feel scary. Like all of a sudden having to feel empathy for this perspective or realizing that this person who really disagrees with me is actually has a rational reason <laughs> for why they see the world that way. But what's your advice for for making sure that when we have that moment that we don't freak out and and yeah. and want to retreat? It is innately kind of scary. I think what one thing to remember is that, you know, we we often think about approaching invalid ideas. That's what we're doing when we're talking to each other. There's valid ideas, there's invalid ideas. The invalid ideas will hurt me and the valid ones will encourage me or what have you. But that's not it at all. We are approaching valid people. In all cases, people are valid and people are more than their opinion on anything. So that's that's what I have found, you know, in my research at Braver Angels. This is where it begins. If if you see the valid humanity of another person. If you see this person is an expert on their own life and they have come to conclusions that I may completely disagree with or even really strongly dislike, but, and yet, their path led them to that conclusion and that is a fact, right? So I think it's about that. It's, it's, we see this when we make connections with people and we make relationships with people. We begin by talking about ideas but we end up just being like, 
I want to know what you think because I care about you, because I'm connecting with you. And so that was part of what gave me the confidence to call my mother that night. It's like, I know she cares about me, you know, and I want to talk to someone who cares about me. And it doesn't matter so much that they disagree with me. So, like, what would that look like? What kinds of questions would that look like? Yeah, I mean, the most important is to change from asking why to asking how. So, not why do you believe what you believe, or versions of that question, often said as a demand, if there's a really strong divide. You know, why do you believe what you believe? But instead, how did you come to believe what you believe? So, questions like that are more about, so tell me what led you to that. And then just kind of, like, sit back and let the person weave their story, tell you their story, right? And there could be all kinds of things. There could be personal experiences that affect them. I remember once a friend of mine years ago talking about guns, and I had no idea that he'd been mugged at gunpoint when he was younger. And when he told me that story, I understood why he had maybe more intense opinions about his right to carry a gun, right? And and just hearing people's experiences is tremendously important. And again, it's not about, I don't suddenly agree with him on his take on gun policy, but he makes sense to me now. And when things in my world make sense to me, I can work with that. You know, I can work with that in a more productive way, in a more kind of calm way. We know from brain science that if if your response is sort of a fear response, flight or fight, right? you're not going to be very creative with what you've heard or the issue that you're wrestling with. You're not going to be collaborative. Your brain doesn't have time for that. It's trying to protect you. So, so that's, the, that's the challenge, right? Is like, can we discern danger from discomfort? So, so it's how, how did you come to believe what you believe? Ask that form of question and ask it to, of yourself. Um, we often don't, don't bother really taking a magnifying glass and going, what was the path I walked to my view on abortion? Like, let me look at the moments that stick out in my memory or the values that seem really strong for me, right? So look at those. When you're able to share those with somebody else, they're able to relate to your path. At least you give them a chance to do that. Not agree with it, with your conclusion, but relate to the path you took to your conclusion. That's a different story. There's always truth in our stories, even when there is no truth in our conclusions. Yeah, interesting. Okay. There's always truth in our stories, even when there's no truth in our conclusion. So that leads me to this other thing that I feel like is a trap for a lot of us. And I don't really know how to get out of it. When you go into one of these conversations and you hear them saying things that you know are factually untrue, Mm -hmm. um, do I correct that? Well, context matters. So if I put myself in the role of a journalist who is doing a live interview and someone says something I know to be untrue, then I dang well better correct it, right? Because it's going out to a lot of people. And what I am I am responsible in my role for, you know, safeguarding the accuracy uh, and, and trying to be responsible about the information. So I, will, I, I, am, I am obligated to do that. Now, if it is you and one other person, So that's a high level of what I call containment, a high degree of containment of that conversation. Then one thing you don't have to worry about is the sort of, the fear we have of contaminating the world with bad ideas. You can just, well, no one else is here. It's just you. So then the question, do you correct them? Well, it depends on your goal, right? Um, you uh, You might be tempted to correct them in that moment, right? They've said something that is just false. 
You know, no, that's not true at all. Okay, that could work. That could be productive, but it depends on a lot of things. Um, Are you in a place where it's a little touch and go? You know, where they're almost like waiting for you to contradict them so that they can tell themselves, she never listens. You know, if that's where you're at and your goal is not to shame or to play out the same script, if your goal is to listen and try to understand and try to change the script for the two of you, then don't correct them in that moment. Again, there is no, like, let's think about the harm. The harm is you're hearing it. Okay. Then it becomes about you're hearing it. Do you have to believe what you hear? Of course not. No. No one says you have to believe what you hear. Okay. So can you look behind the falsehood for something else? And so this is where I borrow um, a great construct from my friend Buster Benson. He wrote a book called Why Are We Yelling? And he talks about how the conversation about what is true is not the only conversation of disagreement that we can be having. There's also the conversation about what's meaningful. And I find this distinction extremely important because a lot of us, when we face a a barrier that's about facts and the other person just doesn't see the facts the way we do at all and seem to believe lies, then we get completely co-opted by that. And we think our only options are to abort this conversation or to like try to convince them to change their mind, which you're probably not going to do. I mean, it's extremely unlikely given the circumstances. So switch from having the conversation about what's true to the conversation about what's meaningful. Look at the person. Just what led them What led them to this? What is, what is the concern? What I found is that a lot of times, you know, if people believe something where the truth doesn't seem to really stack up, the more, the more valuable thing to talk about and listen from them is not the articles they've read and the evidence they can marshal from other places, but rather, what worries you about this? You know, like what's pushing you to want to believe something that seems so flimsy? And so that question will get people to talk about what's really, really the issue. Um, might be a fear of losing something, might be a sense of threat. It might be a really, I mean, it's almost always a valid concern about society. Uh, And so get to that. Talk about that. Don't get so distracted by the falsehood, the apparent falsehood. And I'll say, I say apparent because I've had these kinds of conversations where I think I'm the one that's totally factually accurate. And then I have to eat my words because it turns out some of the evidence they have is actually true. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Oops. You know, So, so don't be so... Don't be so sure that you have all the truth. Yeah. Have you ever been in one of these conversations where you've actually changed your mind? Or they have actually come around to your way of seeing things? How yeah. often is that going to happen, do you think? Yeah. No, it does. My my parents and I have never changed our minds on enormous things. Like, we would still vote the same way. But we certainly have complicated a lot of our understandings. And I would say that's the case with just, just about all the conversations where I've witnessed people persuading each other. We, we all want the holy grail of like, I talked them into being pro-choice when they were pro-life. Like, that's not going to happen in an hour. Like, unless somebody is right there at the edge of it and already on the fence, it is really, really hard for you to suddenly influence them to change something that big. Like, our opinions are the result of our experiences. I mean, they, they have deep, deep roots. You can't dig that stuff out in a conversation or with a meme, right? But, I, but I, what I wish we would do is give more credit to the persuasion that does not change a vote but does, in fact, change and tweak the pathways in our minds. And I cannot tell you how often I've seen that happen to me and to folks who go through Braver Angels experiences, a lot of the people in bridge-building organizations that I work with. You open yourself up to these conversations, you will complicate your own opinions. And some people hear that and they go, oh, no, I need to be who I am and I won't be accepted by my side if I open myself up to those questions. And that's, that's a different kind of struggle. 
you know? Like um, there's a philosopher who asks, what's more important, the truth or your own beliefs? Um, and if you believe the truth is more important than your own beliefs, then you better be open to other ways of looking at things. Monica Guzman's book is called I Never Thought of It That Way, and she's a senior fellow at Braver Angels. You can find her new podcast, A Braver Way, anywhere you listen to podcasts. We often talk about empathy as a fundamental component of overcoming the anger, fear, and mistrust that plague society. But empathy researchers say not all forms of it are helpful. So if somebody else is feeling really distressed and we start to also feel really distressed, that isn't necessarily a good thing. Then you just wind up with two people being distressed. And distress and, and other negative emotions can make us close off, can make us want to exit and leave the situation. So that sort of very specific mirroring of negative emotion is where it can start to get negative. So how do we cultivate the kind of empathy that drives us to stay and help, to lean into differences and work to bridge them? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll be right back to today's episode of Top of Mind. But first, are you ready to immerse yourself in the awe-inspiring world of nature? then I recommend you listen to Constant Wonder. It's another great show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. Join host Marcus Smith in riveting conversations with individuals whose lives have been touched by Earth's beauty and mysteries. Uncover captivating stories that shed light on our planet's wonders, from history to science and beyond. If you crave enriching experiences and a deeper connection with the world around you, tune in to Constant Wonder. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Alison Jade Martingano. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, and I'm also the host of Psychology and Stuff podcast. And I'm an, I consider myself an empathy researcher, uh, so I'm particularly interested in how empathy can be really hard work and how, um, but much like a muscle, if we work hard at it, we can get better at it. Basically, empathy is this huge umbrella term, but you can kind of make a distinction between two large parts of the empathy umbrella, uh, which is the emotional empathy and then the cognitive empathy. So the, the mirroring type of empathy is usually called emotion contagion, uh, and it's considered a type of emotional empathy. If you imagine, for example, that you're, I don't know, you see a car accident or some other terrible disaster, and you start becoming overwhelmed because you're absorbing and mirroring all of these distressed and negative emotions, you're probably going to want to turn away and leave. On a smaller scale, we do this when we see like an advertisement on the television for uh, a, a refugee charity, and we're like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. And then we want to change the channel because we don't want to feel those negative emotions. You've also done some research about how it can, um, how sometimes shame can get kind of wrapped up in that and can lead to actually not just wanting to back away, but actually doing the opposite of helping <laughs> for the person <laughs> yes. who's suffering. So shame is, is, a, is a, it's really awful emotion. Shame is, is a very self-focused emotion that makes us sort of turn in upon ourselves and want to, you know, sink into the floor. So some of my research has been on uh, mirroring the shame of victims of sexual assault. And what that we find is that people who are mirroring that shame then tend to distance themselves from the victims. They don't want to be anywhere near them because that makes them feel ashamed. And also blame the victims for their own assault, which is actually kind of another way 
way of distancing. If you blame that person, then you can sort of push it aside and not feel so concerned for them. So when we say you need to put yourself in their shoes or imagine how you would feel in their place, are, are, are we encouraging the kind of empathy that you're talking about right there? So if we're um, imagining how somebody else would feel, we're using more sort of a cognitive empathy. So we're using our, our mind to imagine how someone else is feeling. We don't necessarily then have to feel shame or that negative emotion ourselves. Uh, and so that's the type of empathy I encourage people to sort of practice doing. Can you describe a scenario where um, cognitive empathy can lead to a helping behavior more effectively? Yeah. So in any kind of situation where it's, it's somebody that we're, we're not automatically in tune with, somebody that we've got to work a little harder to understand, that sort of situation, uh, putting that effort in to really think and imagine what this person is feeling, what this person is thinking, what is their perspective, that is the sort of situation where putting that cognitive empathy will allow us to overcome those barriers and pull us closer together. Uh, the more sort of emetic, emotional empathy, uh, it, it comes more naturally to us, but only to people who we feel similar to already. Uh, we don't actually tend to have that emotional uh, resonance and emotional contagion happen to somebody who we consider part of that other group. So I would say that if we're talking about breaking down boundaries or, or improving intergroup relations, cognitive empathy is going to allow us to bridge that gap, but only if we're willing to put that work in. What is that work? Let's talk about that. Yeah, so it's something that's hard work to do. It, it's difficult to try and imagine what somebody else is going through, especially if they come from a difficult, different background from us. But if we do put that work in, it's something we can get better at. If we're uh, engaging in situations regularly that are a little challenging for us, that require us to take someone's perspective, and we do that often enough, we're going to get better at it. Hmm. So I would encourage people, for example, to listen to podcasts from people who have differing political views from themselves and put the effort in to try and understand where they're coming from. And if you did that often enough, you're going to get better at uh, understanding other people's points of view. Uh, reading, especially reading fiction, is often a good opportunity because you have to try and figure out what the characters are thinking. You have to try and figure out what the characters are feeling. And that's allowing you to practice taking people's perspective in a fictional environment. The same is true for uh, movies. Uh, specifically, you're, you're wanting to engage with media where it's a little bit complex, where you got to try and figure out, oh, is that is that a good character or a bad character? It's a little bit complicated, and I'm trying to figure out their motive. That's a great opportunity to practice empathy. There's some evidence that owning pets is an opportunity to practice empathy. You're trying to figure out what your cat or your dog is thinking or feeling, and it's not obvious, and you can't ask them. But there are also opportunities um, that are sort of over uh, over egged in the in the in the uh, media. So uh, I've done some research, sort of debunking this idea that there's sort of an empathy pill or a quick fix to empathy. Uh, so at one point, virtual reality was touted as like this is the the best way to create empathy. Just put yourself in this VR situation in a refugee camp or something, and then you're going to be super empathic. But it doesn't quite work like that. It requires practice and time. There really is no quick fix to empathy. Putting yourself in that VR situation is going to get more of those emotional empathy juices flowing and isn't necessarily going to help you to practice taking someone else's perspective. 
Interesting. Isn't in some of that research you kind of tracked the the follow-up behaviors that people like if if you go into this VR um, of a of a refugee camp and you're sort of seeing all around you and hearing the sounds and seeing the children and then you come out of it and you're asked, would you like to donate to UNICEF <laughs> to help people in <laughs> refugee camps? There wasn't really the the direct like, oh, VR makes you more willing to help people in that situation. Yeah, we were actually, we were surprised at that because we thought that maybe people would uh, donate more after having those emotions. But no, we didn't find any benefit for donations from taking part in a VR uh, refugee simulation, which I think is actually really important because many charitable organizations are, are investing millions of dollars into creating VR and it's not necessarily having the effect that they would want it to. Now, a couple of uh, sort of um, sort of caveats to that. We were looking specifically at that 360 uh, VR space and that's the most commonly used because it's the cheapest. But there are other types of VR that probably can uh, increase empathy. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, to increase empathy, you need to be working hard to try and figure out what someone else is thinking or feeling. So if you created a VR space where it was ambiguous what that person was feeling, or you had to try and talk to them to figure out what their their emotions were or their, their perspective was, then VR could be an opportunity to practice empathy. It's just that that's not tend to be how it's used at the moment. It tends to be, here is a child crying and, oh my goodness, it's awful. And of course, you do feel for that child in the moment, but it's so obvious that they're upset. You don't have to do any work to figure out what they're thinking or feeling. It's almost like the, the VR is doing the work for you. It's telling you very clearly what this person is feeling. And so you're not got that opportunity to practice figuring that out for yourself. Right. And if you're not engaged in the cognitive piece of it, if you're just doing the sort of feeling piece of it, then, then you're not as likely to do the action piece of it, which is to help to give money or reach out or whatever. Yeah, that's that's what we see. What do you think about these um, these experiences where you can sort of like spend a day in the life of like I've I've been involved in a in a poverty simulation, right? Where you uh, you know over the course of an afternoon have to take on a character and then sort of figure out how to make life work with all of these challenges that come with extreme poverty, or spend a night you know uh, sleeping outside as if you were without housing. Yeah, I think the, all of these sort of ideas could be really great opportunities. Uh, to work your empathy muscles. Um, but again, it's, it's what you put in is what you're going to get out of it. So much like we could go to the gym and sort of cheat on our crunches, you could go and, and do the sleeping outside in a tent without really thinking and, and thinking, oh, wow, this is how I'm feeling right now. I wonder how somebody who has to do this every night would be feeling right now. I'm, I'm putting that thought process in. So I feel like there are so many opportunities in our just day-to-day -day life to, to practice and work our empathy muscles. I mean, every person we meet on the street is another opportunity to try and take someone's perspective. But most of the time, we sort of go through the day without putting that work in because it is hard work. And if we did it all the time, we probably would find ourselves pretty exhausted. Uh, so I, I absolutely think that those sort of simulations can offer a great opportunity, uh, but it'll be what you get out of it is what you put into so what what do I put into it? How do I? Um, I love the example you just mentioned uh, on the street, 
or standing in line at the grocery store, seeing the person in front of you, you're seeing all their food that's going along there. Maybe there's a baby crying in the car. How would you go about trying to stretch your cognitive empathy muscle in that moment? Yeah, so there there are sort of two ways to do perspective taking um, that the researchers have pointed to, uh, confusingly called self and other protective, perspective taking. Okay. So self perspective taking is where you imagine how you would feel in that situation. So how you would feel with those items on the checkout counter with the baby crying in the seat, which works to a certain extent if you and the person are relatively similar but doesn't work if they're very different from you. Uh, so I usually give uh, the example of taking the perspective of my grandfather, for example. So let's imagine I'm taking the perspective of my grandfather going on a roller coaster. If I did self-perspective taking, I'd imagine how I was feeling going on a roller coaster, and I'd be like, I love roller coasters, this is gonna be amazing. Gonna have a great time. But that isn't how he would feel. So that's where other perspective taking comes in, where you imagine how they feel in their shoes. So how my grandfather would feel going on a roller coaster, taking into consideration the fact that he has dementia and he's unsteady on his feet, and he would be absolutely terrified and hate going on a roller coaster. So there are these two different ways to take someone's perspective, imagining how you feel in their shoes and imagining how they feel in their shoes. And they both have pros and cons. So when you do... Uh, self-perspective taking, you are putting a lot of assumptions about you onto that person, which can be wrong if they're different from you. But other perspective taking could be problematic if you don't know them well, because then you're going to take some assumptions. You're going to look, okay, well, that person's old, so I'm going to assume that they're not going to like roller coasters, which could be completely wrong. Uh, so both of these can be problematic in their own ways. Yeah, it's kind of a trap. <laughs> it is a little. But what the key thing is for me is it's not actually necessarily how accurate you are that matters. It's the process of trying to figure it out that's working your muscles. So it doesn't matter if you get it wrong. I mean, it might matter if you then say something to the person and, and offend them, but it's actually for you in improving your empathy, it's the process of trying, which may in turn uh, prompt us to, to feel compassion for them. It may prompt us to want to help them. It may want prompt us to have some curiosity, to ask them some questions. And maybe if we put the effort in to take their perspective and come up with the conclusion, I really can't take their perspective. I, I can't understand where they're coming from. Maybe when we ask them questions, we're going to be a little bit more open to actually hearing their answers because we've taken that moment to be like, you know, I, I really don't understand this person. So let me let me try and figure it out. And, um, and so empathy is, I, I guess, not the whole solution. It's, it's a first step in, in starting to prompt us to think about maybe what they're going through, maybe how it's different from how I feel or how I think. And then that in itself is a good first step, but hopefully it's going to lead to more down the line. Professor Martin Gano, have you had any, are there any personal experiences with empathy that have sort of shaped your thinking about this in your career? Yeah. Uh, so I, I th the one that's coming to mind is, is moving to the United States. So I was uh, born in England and I lived there until I was 24 uh, when I moved to America for my graduate school education. And I failed massively with empathy when I first arrived. I was misunderstanding people all the time. I think it was because we speak the same language that I thought 
I, I know what you, that person's saying. They're using the words that I know what those words mean. But a lot of the time, there are subtle differences in meaning from what an American person says to what a British person says. So one of them that's coming to mind is um, my husband at the time told me that I looked quite pretty. And uh, quite in England is a word used to reduce the amount. It's an adjective that takes down the noun. So quite pretty means less than pretty. Oh. Whereas in America, I learned that quite means very or, or more than. Uh, so I was all insulted and I sat there and I pouted in, this, in the passenger seat of the car because I thought he'd insulted me. And, and it, uh, it took a little while to figure out this misunderstanding that a word that I was sure I knew what it meant, actually, he didn't mean the same thing when he was using it. And another one, when you meet someone uh, in America and they say, let's get coffee sometime, I would then try and follow up and be like, okay, what time? And I realized that's not what that means. <laughs> that is just a polite sort of generality for we should meet up at some time in the future and is not supposed to lead you to say, okay, here's my date book. When are you free? Uh, so I, I had lots of these little moments that I, I had to work to understand. And, and I realized after a while that it, it was a, a lack of empathy. I wasn't putting the effort in to understand what other people were thinking. So I changed my perspective a little bit and, and, and really put the effort in to try and understand uh, what my American friends and colleagues were meaning. Uh, and that for me was a well, I guess a big opportunity to work my empathy muscle was to try and understand uh, the people around me. Professor Martin Gano, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. Allison Jane Martingano is a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, and she's host of the podcast Psychology and Stuff. So have you had a sudden realization lately that you and someone you disagree with were looking at the same issue through different lenses because of your life experience? Or how about what we like to call a stick with it moment when the opportunity to exercise your empathy muscles arose and you chose to stay uncomfortable to do the hard work of trying to understand what someone else was thinking or feeling? We have some great examples of this in our Stick With It conversation series, which you can find right now on our podcast feed. And to share your own story, email topofmind at byu.edu. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Amber Mortensen and me, with help from Samuel Benson and James Hoops. Our audio engineering team includes Spencer Hewitt, Brandon Lewis, and Kelsey Ney. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>